Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Paul Bungie to the show. Paul Bungie is the co-founder and CSO of Conservation X-Labs, an organization that brings innovation to global conservation threats. Conservation X-Labs is a leader in using technology and entrepreneurship to protect biodiversity using a mix of crowdsourcing, open innovation, directed research, and acceleration. Paul was formerly the chief scientist at the XPRIZE Foundation, where he led the impact strategy across grand challenge domains at XPRIZE, spanning civil society, environment, energy, health, and exploration. Dr. Bungie is a global thought leader in bringing innovation to solve environmental grand challenges. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. Thanks for having me. Paul, thank you for being on. And, you know, we were talking briefly offline about you having three daughters and a son. I have three daughters. So I think we can go down a rabbit hole of parenting, but I'll hold that for (laughs) another show. What I would like to start with is something that I heard you mention on another interview. I would like to ask you, what is the tyranny of experts? (laughs) So this is a Without denigrating experts, because expertise is a, a critical thing, this is also the 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 concern that we have when uh, lots of experts start to have a, a bit too much groupthink, and it's difficult to find novel or breakout solutions to potential problems. And it's one of those those notions where, as the world continues to change as dynamically and rapidly as it is, We need to be sure that we're also inviting in and ensuring new approaches, new voices, new perspectives to be able to help address some of the biggest challenges that we might be facing. Um, And when when uh, when when there's too much reliance on uh, let's call it the sort of known quantity interests, the people that that have for the longest time been been uh, those that we look to for answers, then that can become you know sort of a tyranny of expertise, as it were. And I think we think about this really in large part with respect to the genius in the crowd, i.e. there is talent and brilliance everywhere, but the opportunity to participate and help solve problems is not universal. And we need to be able to lift up new experts as much as we possibly can if we're going to tackle some of the biggest threats that we have, be it climate change or biodiversity loss, uh, food systems problems, new pandemics arising, etc., so that's one of the things that we at Conservation X Labs like to think about a lot, which is how do we how do we lift up new experts? How do we how do we break down the existing uh, barriers that might exist uh, for novel solutions, things that are really truly going to be transformative and get us to the next level? So, since you mentioned Conservation X Labs, can you give an overview of the organization and your role at the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So, Conservation X Labs, we're we think of ourselves as a as a technology and an innovation company that's really working in the 
biodiversity conservation space. And, and we have a we have an ambitious and bold mission, which is to prevent the sixth mass extinction. So we're right now in the history of Earth, there have been five previous mass extinctions where uh, well over 90% of all species went extinct. We're what appears to be on the brink of, or even potentially in the midst of already, a sixth uh, great extinction where species are going uh, are being lost from the face of the earth forever at a rate that's completely unprecedented, at a, at a rate that's faster than anything else. The the big challenge, of course, is that or the, 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 it's not a challenge, it's a, a, a realization, an alarming fact is that this is the first mass extinction potentially caused by a single species, humans, us. And so Conservation X Labs is looking at this through the lens that, okay, there's a, a crisis on, on the planet, and it's, and it's a crisis that affects us, of course, because we rely on the services that, that are provided by, by the natural world. We, 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 uh, we, we eat, we, we breathe, we drink clean water, all of which are as a result of this. So it's incumbent on us as well to think about how it is that we might prevent the worst of it from happening. The flip side of this is that we're living in a, an era of unprecedented abundance in terms of uh, the technologies and solutions available to us, the resources that humans have at our disposal to create new solutions. And, uh, and that, that sort of technological and, and innovation capacity is really a real opportunity to prevent the worst from happening. And that's what Conservation X Labs is, to be, is, is built to do. So Alex Dagan and I uh, co-founded this organization uh, about about seven years ago, almost seven years ago now, to bring that new approach, that new uh, vision to a field that really needs to 10x, 100x our efforts to reduce the pressures on the natural world and ensure that we have a thriving planet for, for all, all future generations of all creatures. Have you read the book by Elizabeth Colbert? Mm-hmm. Are you thinking of uh, six, six Extinction? Yes, I am. Yeah. I am. How did you Excellent. feel after you read it? Um, you know, not great. <laughs> <laughs> I felt the same way. So I was just curious. I haven't spoken to anyone about it. I felt kind of sad after I read it. Yeah, it's you know, it's interesting. This is something I've I've studied most of my life, right? And and uh, and and so the book came out after I was, you know, sort of uh, not just aware, but I was I was actually working on my PhD, I think, at the time. Um, and it, it synthesizes so much, uh, not just the science behind extinction and and the the challenges but so much about why it matters i think and uh, you know what i you know what i thought when i when i was reading that book actually was uh, of carl sagan's pale blue dot soliloquy mm -hmm. um, and if anyone hasn't hasn't heard that go to youtube and, and listen to him say this but you know the whole notion that there's this one in the vast expanse of the universe so far as we know yet so far there's this one little hanging blue dot of a planet that contains life. And, and the way he put it was that contains all of life, i.e. all of history, all of the people that you've ever loved or have been loved or will love, all of the, the great things and the, and the, and the terrible things, all of the, all of the amazingness and richness and fullness of life contained on this one planet that when you step back to the edge of the solar system and, and look at it is so incredibly vulnerable looking. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I, I, I was thinking about was how special it is to be in a place that the diversity around us can be so rich, so complex, change so much over the billions of years of history of, of life. Um, and here we are with the power to render species extinct, the power to cultivate a beautiful garden if we so chose, 
you know, the power to, to sort of, you know, if, if, if we collectively wanted to, to make these choices that can actually result in, in a future we either, that either is, is good for humans and other creatures or not. And that's, you know, there's something about that that's profoundly uh, uh, scary, (laughs) (laughs) but also uh, profoundly empowering, I think, Uh, particularly when we recognize that it's not up to single individuals to do, but that when I started out by saying there's this genius in the world and there's this, you know, joy and love in the world uh, amongst people. And when you travel around the world, you see that. And I think, I think if we can harness that and work together, it's, uh, we've got every opportunity to avoid the worst of what, you know, Elizabeth Colbert was, was, was forecasting based on the science. Now, a long time ago, there's this quote by John Muir about everything being connected. And there was this time when, you know, we collectively perhaps believe that. When do you think this right turn happened where we decided that um, we were no longer responsible for being interconnected? That's a, that's, that's a fantastic question that I wish I had the, I wish I'd thought about <laughs> and, and really understood because I, I, I quite, quite candidly, Raj, I, I, I would feel uh, silly trying to speculate on on when or why that happened, I, you know. And I don't want to be the kind of person that immediately blames social media or something because clearly this was happening long before that. Um, although I would say it's it's also not, you know, I don't know if it's what you're describing this sort of right turn towards a, a lack of of uh, reliance on others or or dependence, etc. You know, that feels peculiarly peculiarly. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to say the word, particularly American in some ways. And when you travel to other parts of the world, you don't necessarily see that. You still see a, a tremendous amount of social fabric, um, as it were. But I also don't think that it's permanently American necessarily. There, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, periods where we see folks rallying together to work in, in the future. And I, and I would actually argue that we're right now, and, and particularly because of younger generations, seeing a shift, especially around care for the planet, that is more in line with what Muir was talking about, how if you pull on one thread of the universe, everything else uh, comes along, right? It's all, it's all intertwined. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned, I don't know if your, your girls are this way, but, you know, watching my girls grow up, uh, you know, my, my, my 14-year-old, uh, my 17-year-old, it's pretty clear that they want to work with others. They want to be reliant on, on others and that they, and, and others includes non-human creatures, non-human animals and plants and other, uh, other species that, that there is a, a renewed connection to the environment and, and passion for it. And that's, you know, that's born out in polls, of course, but I also think you see this anecdotally just with how, how powerful movements, uh, around climate change are that are being led by young people, you know, like, like Greta Thunberg and, and others. And so I think, I think we may actually be at a point where, where the, the our fears of, of, over individualistic approaches to these are are going to to be uh, rejected, and and we're going to see younger generations try to pick up where where, uh, where where thinkers of the past have been leading us. I would agree, and I feel like it's a very optimistic outlook. Going back to conservation labs for a moment, you know, we started with this tyranny of experts. How do we convince the experts to perhaps make way for some of these new voices coming online? I think it's actually probably more effective just to convince them not to say no. <laughs> uh, people love their okay. ideas and, and people love power, even if it's, even if it's a, a tiny bit of, of influential type of power. 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's the whole notion of the barbarians at the gate, right? It's mm-hmm. sometimes, and I also think about this to a degree, um, in the way that Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher of science really thought about it, where, where you see paradigm shifts, uh, occur. And obviously he was talking about in science when, when certain theories just could no longer explain the full weight of evidence that had been, that had been, uh, gathered on a particular subject, at which point, uh, usually what you have are a new generation of scientists that then come with a, no, a new theory, a new paradigm that helps explain the existing evidence significantly better. And it's it's actually a new generation that kind of displaces re- relatively rapidly in, in the sort of sphere of scientific thought. I think that's probably true as well in uh, when we're talking about about applying solu- uh, identifying and applying solutions and, and developing new, new things. I mean, you, you certainly see that type of massive disruption in, in industries like technology, right? And and uh, and you're seeing that in in other in other spheres uh, as well, where completely new approaches to communication or healthcare uh, are are rapidly being adopted, and and often they they occur in places where you don't have the incumbency necessarily, right? And so think of I think I like to think of technological leapfrogging as well. Um, if you look at something like like the prevalence of smartphones. Um, a lot of this happened in, in lower and middle income countries initially, where you did not have established wired telephones going everywhere. Uh, and and so when, as soon as you had cellular technology that became adopted extremely rapidly, which helped drive down the costs of building these kinds of phones. And it, and then it quickly got adopted in places in Europe and, and North America and, and others that, you know, were slower to actually pick this up. And I'm thinking of places like Myanmar, where it was something like two years that went from 0% cell phones to 98% penetration, um, just remarkable adoption, right? Because it was, there was nothing in its place. And that, that allowed technological innovation to accelerate in many ways. We're seeing the same thing with things like renewable energy, right? Uh, where, where places that don't have built out grids can rapidly identify. And in fact, one one example that I just think is so amazing is we Conservation X Labs working with a whole suite of partners, including the Rocky Mountain Institute, the University in India, the Government of India, and others, uh, ran something we called the Global Cooling Prize, which was looking at transforming air conditioners. Right, which seems really sort of you know n- not not extremely s- sexy and exciting, but it turns out most air conditioners you buy are extremely inefficient, something like 12 or 13% of what they could possibly be. So they use a lot of electricity to cool off a room. And a country like India, not only is it already the largest uh, uh, dema- site of demand for air conditioning, but it's it's rapidly expanding because people are moving into the middle class. Uh, people are, are um, it's getting hotter and, and, and the like. And so the demand is through the roof. So we thought, how do we, how do we fix this? We had a prize, which is this, you know, okay, rather than the tyranny of experts, which in this case was two large manufacturers of that made 70% of all of the room-sized air conditioners in the world and had, you know, their, their tyranny was based on market capture. Uh, how do we change this and transform this, this sort of technology? Um, and so we asked, we asked anybody who, who, who wanted to, to try to create a technology that was five times better uh, for, the, for the planet, for five times less impact on climate change, more efficient. Um, turns out the two winners actually 10x that number, 10x. Um, and this is remarkable because what this means is a country like India, which is now working to actually scale these technologies, can drive the demand side that's needed to get something that's so much better for the planet. And, it, and at 10x, if just India's demand is met uh, using this new technology, and like I said, the, we worked with the government, so their, their, their effort is to, to do this. 
that's the equivalent of avoiding one degree of, of warming, uh, just India. And now imagine if we expand that to the rest of the world, right? This technology that, it, you know, I would prefer to buy because I spend less money on my electricity bill. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles and you live in Texas, so you, you know how much the AC costs, right? So absolutely, it's that kind of thing, I think, as well, that's really really um, possible in terms of how do you get how do you get the experts as it were or the incumbents let's say to change sometimes you is is you replace it with something that's just so much better uh, the rest of the world demands that that become the the standard so you mentioned the air conditioning challenge let's speak tactically for a moment how does conservation x labs invite people to participate in these challenges so that's a great question. We we do we do a couple of things at Conservation X Labs. We we both uh, have this kind of open innovation program, which is exactly like you described: prizes and challenges. We also we also believe in in the power of collaboration. So we have a mass collaboration platform that allows people to ideate together and and, and work together to to co create, uh, as it were. But we also then build our own technology. Sometimes it's it's more uh, it's more straightforward if you know what the solution needs to be and how to build it. Then you just go ahead and, and do it, and so we've also done that, and 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 we we are currently kind of blending these two models to create new solutions as quickly as we can when it's when when we don't know who can 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 create the solution, but we do know what needs to be built in 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 a decent uh, fashion or with with you know reasonable confidence, um, and then we're able to actually cycle these these folks through. But to get that talent, that you're onto a really really important question. One one way is being on 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 podcasts with folks like you to to sort of uh, preach that this exists, but it's really through partnerships. It's really about how it is that you identify the, 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 the groups out there that are passionate about also finding new solvers. And I think one of the challenges that, that we face is that in, in any field, but this is especially true in, in conservation and, 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 and environmental work, we often think really narrowly about people that, that, that are, are educated like us or trained like us or work in the same fields as us. When in reality, you know, we're really good at knowing, and I'm, I'm trained as a biologist, I'm really good at describing problems, um, but I'm not exceptionally well-trained at, at, you know, building a new piece of tech, as it were. And so what we need to do is invite the new solvers in from all kinds of different fields, be it engineering, be it, uh, uh, be it computer science, be it uh, design, architecture. We, you know, oftentimes what you need are the creative thinkers, the, the you know, the, the artists and others that are able to, to, to co-create with a team what a solution looks like because a solution is not just a widget it's not just a bunch of wires you plug in or code that you type into your computer very often it requires those design elements that that will ensure somebody out there wants to use this thing and not just one somebody but millions of somebody so that you can get something to scale so the something like this technology gets a, the, the cooling technology we described gets adopted and so that means partnerships with um you know, groups across the spectrum and quite frankly, around the planet, around the world, where we can actively reach out and people can reach out as, as cre credible ambassadors and say, there's this, this challenge out there that you might be able to solve. And, uh, and so we do spend a lot of time, a lot of work building partnerships, reaching out through the media, um, you know, and, and, and promoting the opportunity for solvers to join us because the more that we get there, the more, more opportunity there is for that genius that's in the crowd to be able to to be given the opportunity to showcase what they can do and create a solution. You know, this might be outside the realm of this conversation, but I'm going to suggest an idea. I don't know if it's possible or not, but I mean, I'm going to bring it up. I heard you say on an interview, we have 3 billion potentially new minds coming online here in the next few years. Yep. You talked about cell phone adoption, technology, et cetera. I've been around technology for a good 10, 12 years specifically. 
uh, here in the Dallas area. I'm familiar with apps. I had my own software startup for a while, so I'm familiar with the whole app building, distribution, etc. But as he was speaking, I thought about the opportunity of what would it look like to have Conservation X Labs as a pre-installed app on an Android or iOS device. That way, when these three billion new minds come online, they don't immediately get consumed into the world of social media, but there's an opportunity for them to see where they can essentially earn, learn, and contribute. That's a cool idea. <laughs> That's a really cool idea. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk further. We built something, and it's still it's still live, called our digital makerspace which is a essentially an open door for people to come in with questions, ideas, and even potential solutions, right? And then and then team up and build different things that are on there. And uh and it's we're we're thinking how to how to rebuild it and take it to a new thing. And and I like your idea about and I'll, making I'll, I'll it tell you, I'll tell you why because I have a lot of family in East Africa. In fact, my parents are in Nairobi right now uh visiting. I have a lot of family in India and and what I've seen over the last let's call it 10 years, Paul, is that when people get their cell phones, the first thing they're drawn to is the social media apps of the world. In fact, some people in India will, you know, it's quaint because for us, we go back to the 90s and look at <laughs> AOL and AOL was quote unquote the internet. And now with the popularity of Facebook, people think Facebook is the internet. The that's, internet. Their, that's their gateway to get in and get connected. And then once they're on that so many of them get lost down that rabbit hole of you know useless messages and WhatsApps, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm thinking from a broader perspective, how do we capture some of that talent and minds before they get lost in that rabbit hole? I love hole? that idea. And you could gamify this. I mean, this Absolutely. is- Absolutely. I mean, there's a hundred different ways to do it. Um, there's another gentleman I heard recently, Balaji. He's actually doing a problem solving where he's rewarding via you know digital currencies. And so if there's some way to gamify it, Conservation X Labs, digital currency, and having a pre-installed app, let's say on an Android device, because That's you know most cool of the populations of those countries are Android devices. You know, people people are often feel feel. It's funny how how people feel reward, right? And what what incentivizes people to do things. And money's great, but often it's the pride of knowing you've done something important. So you could imagine how easy this would be to build a on a Web three sort of notion, right? Because ideas can become NFTs in this way, and you and you uh, and, and you give people the sort of power to to, to to change the world and, and prove it <laughs> that they're the ones. People will die for medals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So absolutely. Now you talked about the, the makerspaces and I think I heard you in an interview saying that you're looking for opportunities to partner with makerspaces too. Is that correct? Yeah. So we often, um, you know, a lot of times our challenges or our, our innovators and things like that, they just need a physical place to build. And so, and this is another example of partnering with with folks. We we love to to showcase other other awesome organizations and and facilities and 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 such that are doing amazing things. And if we can send great people their way, we'd love to. So yeah, absolutely. Now I know the concept of makerspaces here in the U.S., but is there a concept of makerspaces overseas too? There is, uh, yeah. And in fact, like some of the one of my favorite ones is a place called Maker Bay, um, which is in Hong Kong was their, is their is their core one, but they also have uh, outposts in Calcutta and uh, somewhere in Malaysia, I think as well. They're they're quite remarkable. So uh, certainly, South and East Asia have a lot of makerspaces. There's uh, some in Northern Europe, I know as well that a group called Mistletoe runs. Um, so yeah, they and they're very similar in some ways. And 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 you know, one of the keys to any of these makerspaces is often community. Getting back to this question you were asking about people wanting to work together, you know, it's it's funny. And I'd be very curious. I'm very curious to see. 
after a couple of years of, of pandemic restrictions, you're starting to see people want to scratch that itch of being and working with others again. Um, and makerspaces may, you know, are the kind of place that I would, I would love to see just, just, you know, explode as, as people want to get back in the world and do something productive with others. Now you mentioned Malaysia and I think it was Indonesia, but I had a dinner conversation last night with my girls about one of the projects you mentioned in another interview, the one with the lobsters and the wires. Can you share yeah, yeah. that? Can you share some information about that project? Yeah. So this is, this is a cool thing. It's called lobster lift. Um, so we, we ran a, um, essentially an engineering hackathon in Borneo a number of years ago that we called make for the planet. And we invited, uh, we invited groups to, to apply, to be a part of this. And 15, uh, groups from around the world, uh, were, were invited to this conference in, uh, around, uh, ocean marine conservation in, uh, in, in Borneo, in Malaysia, in the, in Malaysian Borneo. And, um, what we did was we actually brought those experts we talked about earlier who know the problems really well and asked them to challenge these 15 brilliant teams, which were groups of engineers, you know, uh, students, uh, uh, there was a group from maker Bay that was actually helping us, uh, with this, you know, bringing in the 3d printers and everything else like that. And, uh, and one of the, one of the problems that was out there was this problem of, uh, uh, the Atlantic right whale, which is a, a, an endangered species. There's fewer than 500 individuals left uh, that's along the eastern coast of, of North America that it, that it lives. And there are there are two causes of mortality, of death in the Atlantic right whale. Uh, one is ship strikes and the other are lobster line entanglements. So there, so when you are, are catching fishing lobster, uh, one of the things that you do is you put a lobster pot down on the, on the the seafloor. And then there's a cable, uh, a rope that goes all the way to the surface where there's a buoy so that you can pull that so that the lobster fishers can pull that thing up. Well, these right whales will actually get entangled in these. There's a million of these lines between Florida and Maine. I couldn't believe and, that number when I heard it. Isn't that insane? Um, I mean, well, you know, there's a lot of lobster too and <laughs> you can eat. So uh, the, the size of things that happen in the ocean is is mind boggling. I, I don't think most people can even fathom how 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 much there is there, including how much we're actually taking out of it. Um, so yeah, as these right whales swim by, they, they will get caught in the lines. They, they wrap around them and will often suffocate these, these right whales. So, so this was the problem. This is the challenge. And this was put to, uh, groups and one of them, which was a group of, of folks, uh, 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 that included some engineers and included some scientists and others. They came up in five days, they came up and prototyped a solution they called lobster lift, which removed that rope entirely. And what you have is a sonic key, right? So the, so you can, put sonar through the water. And what it did was attached a, an inflatable balloon that was on the lobster pot on the sea floor. And if the lobster fisher came by and, and used the correct key, sonic key, right? The correct sound down there, it would trigger that lobster pot to inflate the balloon, which would rise then to the surface. Brilliant. In some ways, elegant solution. Uh, to this. It also, as it turns out, has the advantage of making it ex basically impossible to steal someone else's lobster pot, right? Because there's, there's, there's a lock and key now uh, as well. And that is, uh, you know, so that's something that actually the lobster fishers love. They think this is, this is kind of cool, right? Um, and so now it's being scaled up. Uh, it was, it was hailed by the head of this phenomenal organization called the International Fund for Animal Welfare as the only solution he's ever seen uh, to the right whale entanglement problem uh, a couple of years ago at a, at a big international meeting. So it's, it's just one of those examples of you get some people that don't necessarily know about the right whale. Uh, they don't know about the problem, but if they're given a challenge in five days, they can literally come up with a working prototype of this. And now it's, uh, now it's being built out um, as a separate sort of little independent company that a couple of those engineers started. So. 
It really is an elegant stuff. solution. And the way I described it to my nine-year-old was I used the TV remote as an example. <laughs> I like that. That's exactly right. And I said, That's look, exactly our, right. our, our TV remote only turns our TV on. So for, for a moment there, she said, a balloon, how do they stop the lobster pot from flying away. I said, no, it's not a balloon like that. It just comes to the surface of the water. But that's kind of the explanation I gave her. Yep. But that's right. That's right. You just, you, you inflate it so that it floats and that's, it's that simple. Very interesting. Now, can you explain, and it sounds beautiful, but I'm, I know it's not from research. What is artisanal mining? Great question. Um, it does sound beautiful. It's a funny term. So it we, sounds we lovely, often... doesn't it? It's like artisanal <laughs> bread. <laughs> It's uh, sometimes we'll call it artisanal and small scale mining as well. So, you know, when when, we're talking right now through these computers and inside these computers are a ton of different metals, right? Uh, Copper, gold, some, some, you know, lithium for the batteries, et cetera. Well, these, these come from somewhere, right? They get mined out of the earth typically. But our perception of mines, big giant pits somewhere with massive trucks and things like that is, is off compared to the actual size of something we, you just described, artisanal and small scale mining. And that's really individual miners and smallish operations doing things in typically an informal, uh, meaning that there's no company behind it, uh, sometimes an illegal, uh, i.e. I. They're, they're, they're taking stuff out uh, of a place without permission uh, and 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 maybe against the the, the laws of that country um, and then putting it into the supply chain and so this is this is it's actually you know an issue I didn't know very much about at all until a couple of years ago when when we were investigating what were the the critical effects on biodiversity and water and aquatic ecosystems and things like that and this came up uh, as a potential real area for innovation. And I'll give you just sort of a, a specific example. We're working right now in the second round of a challenge to, to ask innovators from anywhere to come up with cool solutions to, to this problem. And right now it's focused on the Amazon and gold mining. Well, so gold is in all of our computers, all of our technology. Obviously, it's a, a huge part of our jewelry as well. About a third of all the gold in the world comes from these small informal mines. That's amazing. Um, now, now, when I say small... It's because it's because they're not you know centralized operations. They can actually get quite large, um, and a significant amount. Most of this is actually happening in the Amazon basin. And what happens is miners will come into virgin rainforest, and in the in the topsoil of of the of of the Amazon is significant amount of gold. And so they will they will take down the entire rainforest, uh, denude this entirely, strip the topsoil and put this through really, really rudimentary mines. I grew up actually in California's gold country. And we're talking about the same technology they're using now that that that, that I learned about people using during the gold rush in, in the 1850s in, in California, right? So it's, and they're basically taking this dirt, putting it through sluices, amalgamating it to mercury. And you actually see these miners will sometimes even be standing in vats of mercury mixing with gold, right? So it's a horrible human health uh, disaster as well. And then all of the all of the tailings and effluent end up getting into the watershed. And, and, and you'll see these massive ponds now where once was beautiful, beautiful, lush, rich rainforest filled with species is now what looks like just a, a you know a Martian wasteland, but filled with different colors of, of polluted water and, and ponds and the like. And to give you an idea of how much impact this can have, you know, we often think of mercury pollution as a marine problem. Don't eat that fish, right? Because there's too much mercury in it. Well, 40% of the mercury pollution in the world comes from these artisanal gold mines, 40% that are very far away. And it's because you've got miners that are, that are, that are desperate for a living. And this is a huge, this employs 
you know, a hundred million people or so globally. So it's a, it's a big economic driver for, for some of the poorest people in, in the world that are, that are working for a couple of years to be able to, uh, to support their family. But it also results in, in damage to their health. When you, when you literally burn with a blowtorch, the mercury to off of the gold in order to get pure gold, um, that, you know, then you end up breathing this, but it also gets into the atmosphere and deposits into the ocean and it gets into the water, etc. And then you have this lost thing. So, we ask the question, all right, you, you can't just blame the miners, right? They're incentivized to do this. This is we, it's you and I, Raj, that are, that are part mm-hmm. of demand for this gold, for example, right? So what is it that we can do to improve their lot, uh, improve the lot of the ecosystems that they're, that they're in, where they're, where they're mining this out of, and in particular, make it clear that we need, we can change the entire incentive structure for doing this through those supply chains. And right now those supply chains themselves are difficult to see through. Sometimes, uh, in fact, often they're using the same supply chains uh, through criminal networks that are that are trafficking in 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 guns and drugs and people and the like, and also putting these kinds of minerals that eventually make it into into you know your 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 your, your smartphone. Um, and so this challenge asked people to come up with new ways of doing the mining. How do you do it without mercury, for example? New ways of exposing the the supply chain or making 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 it clear and transparent so that so that we can make better decisions as consumers or as companies that are buying these things. New ways of uh, of actually empowering the miners themselves so they don't have to tear down so much rainforest, for example, as well, like data tools. And, all. and we've seen some incredible solutions. In fact, I'm super excited because this week. We've taken a number of the innovators, the cool solutions from the first round and the second round of this, and we're now putting them in what we're calling the Amazon CoLab, which is a facility to help them field test and scale up their solutions with partners on the ground that know these things, right? Because a lot of the innovators are not from uh, South America, for example. And so what we're doing in the Amazon is, is giving them the opportunity to work with those, uh, those local communities, those local solvers, and those local organizations that can help scale these solutions up, test them in the field, make sure that they're, that they're appropriate for this, and really give that next step, right? So it, at, at Conservation X Labs, we, we, we do a ton of sourcing of great ideas and great new solutions. We do our own developing them. This is that last step in scaling them up, right? Because until you get a, a remarkable breakthrough into the hands of everyone who needs it, it's not really the solution we need. And so that last, that last step, scaling, is, is what I'm, I'm, I'm super excited because we're launching the CoLab this week. Uh, and, and a bunch of our team is down in Peru um, in, in the Madre de Dios province, which is a beautiful place in, in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, launching this with some incredible innovators and giving them a chance to really show what they can do and, and take it to the next level. It is, it is exciting. And I think the key or one of the keys you mentioned there in passing is the idea of not affecting the livelihood of the people that are doing the work. I think yeah. that incentive has to be in place. And we often think of, of, of nature as somehow separate. Uh, and that's, you know, we are a part of nature. <laughs> we have we evolved from from other apes, and uh, and 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 we rely in, in all of these ways. And in in reality, uh, you know, this is about people and giving giving people the opportunity to thrive on this beautiful blue dot, this beautiful planet that we have. And so you're exactly right. You know, these are it's 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 a it's a it's a stupid, quite frankly, notion to blame those that are looking for a, a way to to support their family. For what's happening, and in reality, you know, if we can give them a better way, or they can develop their own better way, then that's what we need to support. Because uh, everybody actually likes nature, as it turns out. And 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 let's let's not let's not denigrate. Let's actually co-create ways of solving these problems. Well, speaking of nature, and you know, you mentioned COVID earlier. Some of the challenges we're seeing today 
is because, you know, we're seeing this border, quote unquote, between us and nature spilling over into humans. What are some of the challenges you're seeing in that area? This is, this is actually an area we care deeply about. And I, thanks for, for asking because it's, um, you know, there's this, there's this new, newish kind of field called planetary health, which really reflects the fact that, that human health, public health, agricultural health, and ecological health are in, completely intertwined. Uh, right. And as makes sense. Yeah. It, I mean, it, we see it too, right. If, if, um, if, if there's a, a strange cold snap that happens in let's say Texas and it shuts down all of the electricity grid, uh, people end up dying. Right. So, mm -hmm. so your health is actually related to the, to, to a weather system that is likely being affected by climate change and, and shifts in the, in the jet stream and the like. Right. And the same thing with heat waves, uh, same thing with, with uh, pollution that, that gets in the water, right? All of these kinds of things. So it makes sense. But what we're seeing now is this field planetary health start to actually put some real meat behind how we deal with these kinds of things. So this is an area that we, we Conservation X Labs, consider ourselves in many ways a planetary health organization. And as an example, you know, we one of the things we've been building for the last several years uh, is a handheld molecular uh, lab, essentially, right? So and and in fact, we've been thinking about this as okay. How can you tell? Uh, how can you tell if there's an endangered species that's 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 been turned into into bone or or flesh or something like that, and it's being traded, uh, you know, uh, across borders and things like that? And customs agents are trying to stop it. Well, the only way to tell is with genetics, right? Is with the DNA that's inside there. And so we built a tool. Uh, we call it the Nabbit. Uh, um, it's a, essentially it, it takes the genetic barcode. And it puts it in the hand of anybody. Uh, it's super easy to use. You don't need to be a scientist. It goes anywhere. It's rugged. You can drop it, all these sorts of things. And then when COVID happened, we realized that you know a, a virus like the virus that causes COVID is the same thing. You can't see it. And it gets anywhere. And so it's great if you can swab it and send to a lab and 24, 48 hours later, you find out uh, whether you're positive or not. But what about those people maybe a homeless encampment that aren't going to be there 24 or 48 hours later, right? Or what about those clinics that are that are far down on on uh, uh, a road where it actually takes three to four days just to ship the sample before it gets it gets processed? So you can take the NABIN. So we started developing a test with partners that had spun out of the Broad Institute at, at Harvard, um, a, a test for for this. And now we're extending that to to how do we prevent the next 20 pandemics, right? Because COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, it, it most likely it jumped from an animal reservoir, a bat, right? That was in that was in a, a wet market. Well, we know other viruses have done the same thing. HIV has done that. Ebola uh, jumped from from primates. Uh, uh, Nipah, Zika, all of these sorts of things are so-called zoonotic diseases. So now we are we are deeply uh, engaged. We're working with partners at places like UC Davis, Johns Hopkins. Uh, Cornell, the, the U.S.'s Agricultural Research Service, uh, MERS, the Middle East Rep Respiratory S uh, Syndrome, actually jumped from domestic camels, uh, interestingly enough. So, so agricultural sites can also be a, a source of, of these kinds of things. The swine flu actually came from, from domestic pigs in the U.S. That, that we remember from the mid-2000s. So, so we're, we're looking at things like the NABIT as tools to put at the front lines of detection, so that we can stop these pandemics before they start, but it also gets to the core, the core challenges, right? So something like Ebola, um, as well as probably HIV, appear to have emerged because of bushmeat trade, right? So, so it, humans going out and 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 hunting animals in the forest, essentially, 
uh, for food, for meat, uh, and the like, which is often driven by other economic challenges or often conflict, notably. So we think Ebola is probably related to some of the conflicts in West Africa um, that were there, for example. So all of these, you know, issues from human, you know, human security to uh, to uh, uh, agriculture to where is uh, uh, where where are those threats to our our lives going to come from next? Really, are intertwined and interrelated, and that's part of what we see as Conservation X Labs. Sort of, sort of opportunity to help is to how do we bring those different groups together, those different experts, which are still valuable, but probably have only a fraction of the solution together to solve the big, big things uh, and and to work on on something that's going to be the next step, the 10x that's going to get us there. Some of those we'll develop ourselves; others we just want to work with as many people as we possibly can to to create the next uh, the next intervention, the next solution, the next opportunity to stop uh, something that could cause. Uh, an even worse pandemic, if if that's possible. You know, it sounds like you're working on so many different areas, and I can sense the enthusiasm in your voice. You've been with Conservation X Lab for about eight years now. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? That's a that's a. Um, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that enthusiasm. It, it, well, enthusiasm is not enough. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, it's uh, uh, you've you you said you've been an entrepreneur. You know, entrepreneurship is hard, very hard. It is. Um, it is. You know, I, uh, my, my co-founder, Alex, uh, before I was able to join him full-time, I was, I was the chief scientist at XPRIZE before, before this. Um, he, it was about a year, by the way, what's that? I'm a fan of the XPRIZE. Yeah. yeah, It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, this is where I get a lot of, uh, you know, where a lot of our inspiration comes from them and, and similar organizations that think quote unquote exponentially. Right. I mean, and, and, and it's really important. Um, it's really important. Well, I guess two things that are, that, that, that are there. One having people you trust that you can work with. And so I don't, I, I, you know, Alex has said this, but I, I feel this, which is, I, you know, I couldn't do any of this without having a, a, a partner in him um, to really keep, keep things going. Cause sometimes it's, it's emotionally so draining. Right. Um, the second piece is, is to, that I've learned is, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm getting better, but I'm not great at making the hard decisions necessarily. The decisions that might affect people and, 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 you know, where they're going in life. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, running, running an organization is, is not all about the mission and the vision. It's also about how you get great people doing great things together. And, you know, for example, the, the pandemic has been challenging, um, for everyone. Uh, and, and when we're not together, you can see that people aren't as, as, uh, it's not productive, but they're not as, Engaged. Not as much who they are and who they need to be to help Conservation X Labs succeed, and that includes me. And I think that you know, learning those kinds of lessons is is uh, is is uh, whew, uh, you know difficult sometimes, but it's also really really important to know that that we're all getting better, as it were. I can understand that. Now, I usually ask a question about fast forward into the future, but let's ask specifically Conservation X Labs. What will it take to get you to the next level? You know, it is a little bit to me about fast forwarding to the future. We were asked by one of our team members, Chad Gallinet, asked us, asked Alex and I uh, a, a year plus ago. He said, "What's CXL shorthand? What does it look like in 2040?" And we love that question. And it took us a while. We we spent several weeks kind of thinking about it, and we we started to answer it uh, actually in this next level manner, right? Because we realized that right now, especially coming out of the pandemic, all of the work we've done over the past few years, CXL's at, at, at Conservation X Labs is at a point, an inflection point where we think we can we can really transform uh, the field of conservation. And that's what we were looking at in 2040 was, you know, in 2040, 
conservation shouldn't be a, a nice to have that you give some money to a to an NGO to a nonprofit organization that you know that that, that loves to show cool animals. It should really be a part of all economic activity. We shouldn't be thinking about it as something separate where you put up a, a fence uh, to protect things. But in reality, it should be that all of all of all of us have a job that, in some way, shape, or form, is supporting and conserving and protecting uh, uh, the natural world as well as as the human world. In, in, partly because they're so intertwined. Um, and so how do we get there was the next question. Well, we got to do it now in some ways. And I think the next level, we're at this point where uh, quite candidly, Raj, what we need are more partners. Um, we need to work together. That, that, that means everything from from more capacity to, to build things, be they maker spaces or others. That means more companies, corporations, we work with some and we're starting to increase that more. They want to come in and see the opportunity uh, to transform their work so that it's not just about, uh, you know, ESG or, you know, or sustainability is a nice to have, but it's really, how do we make your company better? Because let me give you an example, right? I, we regard food waste as one of the, one of the biggest threats to biodiversity on the planet. Why food waste? Well, about 40% of our food globally is lost somewhere between when it's grown and, and after it's consumed. Right, it could be lost on the farm. It could be lost in transport. It's certainly in 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 my household. It's too often lost on the dinner plate. Mm-hmm. Um, but think about that: forty percent. We're at a point where, in order, if we were to use conventional agriculture and we were to feed the next couple of billion people that will be born by twenty fifty, we would have to add agricultural land the size of the continental United States. And quite frankly, we that means taking all this natural space that we really don't have anymore. In other words, there's not enough space to do it. Well, so one of the easiest things to do, instead of instead of cutting down more forest to grow more cows and more soybeans for more cows kind of thing, how do we reduce the waste that's in that system? 40%. Think about that. That's a massive amount of land that's, that's protected and saved. So it turns out that's also a huge driver of climate change, right? Because that land conversion is also releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So if you can take that offline. So that's one of those things where we want to work with companies, for example, that would actually save a ton of money if they're not paying for 40% of stuff that they can't sell, right? It's it's a win-win. And so that's one of the things we're also looking at. It also means... Um, you know, those that, that want to put their money where their mouth is, that really believe in it, that there's that, that, that we're in an ecological crisis, but need maybe they, they understand implicitly, maybe they haven't seen it yet, but want to be able to see that those solutions that I talked about, those exponential solutions, those things that can 10x things are actually possible now. We, we, we have the scientific, the technological, and now the sort of innovation capacity to get those 3 billion new minds, especially if we build this app together, right? Uh, if we get those, those folks online, we can come up with those solutions. This is not hard anymore. So we need those people with money on the sidelines thinking it's still a nice to have to also come in. And all of that, I think, will not only help get Conservation X Labs to the next level. And again, it's not just about us because we are, we, you know, we are a network. We are, we are, we are a community. We believe in, in, in empowering as so many uh, individuals, organizations, and others. But that's what's going to lead to what, what our vision for 2040 is as well, which is a world where, where everything we do is actually completely in line with protecting humans and the planet. You know, it's interesting. I wrote an article that I published last week specifically around extended producer responsibility, EPR. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Tell me. So Maine last year passed a law, and I'll share the article with you later, regarding extended producer responsibility, where now the manufacturer of a product is going to be responsible for how the consumer disposes of it. I have heard of this. Yes, absolutely. 
and Oregon is right behind them, and I think California is looking at it too. Actually, there are 21 states considering this law right now. And so I'm thinking that, you know, if you bring this idea of conservation to companies that perhaps have a presence in some of these states, it might be a good starting point for a conversation. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is, it's a really, I have heard of it, so I apologize for not knowing the term, but the, you know, it's part of this, this movement towards a circular economy as well. And Mm -hmm. it's, it, 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 people respond to incentives, companies, individuals, sometimes those incentives are sticks. when a state comes up and says, you got to do this, but it's, you know, it, it solves one of these big problems in ecology and economics, um, which is an externality, right? If, if, if you can dispose of something for free, then who, who bears the cost of all of that, that waste? Well, ultimately we all do as a society. So, so this is, this is trying to bring that into the, onto the the balance sheet of a company, which I think is cool. And you're right. They're going to need solutions. They're going to need to develop things, right? It's, it's, there's, there's two sides to a coin. A, A country like India can say, we need better cooling technology because we can't build enough coal fired power plants to meet demand for it. Um, they can say that and you can build the incentives, but you got to get the innovators out there to actually create this 10 X better cooling as well on the, on the flip side. Right. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. This is the opportunity. That, it's a uh, great insight. Cause I think that's how we see CXL being able to, to serve as that innovation engine, uh, that will help, that will help address those, those, uh, those new changes. So let me ask my future question. Then I think you'll have a good answer for it. Let's say it's 2040 picture year. If fast company Forbes, wall street journal, were to write a headline, perhaps a short paragraph about CXL, what would you like it to read? Well, that's like, and now <laughs> you're casting your vision. Yeah, I know, but now it feels like bragging. And I don't, but uh, I, you know, I'd like it to read something to the effect of, of you know, don't the Forbes, oh, something like don't. the Forbes 500. Let's say it's Forbes, right? Mm-hmm. This year, the Forbes 100, let's say, is represented by a majority of companies that were started or inspired by Conservation X Labs. It's beautiful. Write it down, tack it on there. That's your, that's your vision. I like it. What did, what did um, Peter Diamandis say? He said a lot the of best, things. The best way to predict the future? There you go. Just create it yourself. Build it yourself, right? And I heard you mention that on another show or another, another interview. So there you go. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I think Buckminster Fuller was maybe the first one to say that. And Peter has, has articulated it so well in, in so many different, different realms. And, you know, I mentioned this word abundance. He wrote a book, um, uh, wrong along with Stephen Kotler called abundance, which really paints the fact that this, these opportunities are there. Um, I don't think I, that vision that I just articulated, I don't think that's crazy. Anybody can have a vision that big now, um, especially because we can capitalize on, on the brilliant minds that are in the world and the brilliant opportunities and the, and the, and the, the, the generations like our kids that not only want to see a better future, are actively working to create it. Totally agree. So last question, and this could be professional or personal, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Um, you know, I think it's the, the personal and the professional are so intertwined nowadays. Uh, I think it, think big and dream bigger, but bad things will happen. Don't blame, don't get up, you know, don't, you, you, we, we should mind, we can mourn, we can get upset, um, but don't let the bad things deter you from your vision. Paul, I love that. Don't let the bad things deter you from your vision. I think it's a great place to leave off. I wish you all the best with CXL and look forward to catching up with you again soon. A real pleasure to talk to you, Raj. And it sounds like we will talk soon. Great, Absolutely. great ideas you have. And I love it. And I can't wait to, uh, to have another conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.